Last week we noted that the Apostle Paul was uh, wrapping up his defense. Um, if you remember the, the layout of the book, as we had kind of mentioned when we first started this, and we've repeated it a number of times now, Second Corinthians can kind of be broken down into three groups, if you will, or three sections. The first seven chapters or so are Paul's defense for some accusations against him. And then he gets into chapter 8 and chapter 9, which deal with um, giving. And then chapters 10 through the rest of the book is sort of Paul's um, challenge and warning to the Corinthians as he's preparing to come and visit them um, another time. And so our plan is to make it through chapter 7 today, and then we will address chapters 8 and 9 over the next two or is it three weeks. Dustin, I don't remember. Two or three. Three. Okay, so the next, I'll basically start with chapter 8 next week and then Dustin will finish um, chapter 9 over the following two weeks. And then we're going to have some Christmas messages and other things that we'll be doing um, through the end of the year and then we'll be starting the Gospel of Mark in January. And then we'll come back, maybe in part of Mark or even at the end of Mark, we'll come back and finish up. 2 Corinthians. And we can do that because really the, the way that 2 Corinthians is laid out, it's not necessary that we do all of it together as one chunk. Um, we can take chapters 10 and following as sort of a separate section. So we'll, we'll be doing that. But last week we looked at chapter, seven, or chapter 6 and we saw how Paul had made ultimately two appeals, um, if you want to call them, two broad appeals. Both of them had to do with reconciliation. The first appeal was what we did last week, which was that he called on or he appealed to the Corinthians to reconcile themselves or to be reconciled to God. This week he's going to be looking at their reconciliation with him, and so he makes his second broad appeal, be reconciled to us. Last week, as we looked at this appeal for them to be reconciled to God, he shared with us three, I'll call them minor appeals. One was that they would not take the grace of God in vain, which means to allow God's grace to have its effect on them. God pours out His grace on us, not just to give us the gift of life, but He wants to see it transform us. And Paul shared an example from his own life where he had been transformed by the grace of God. And so when Paul challenged the Corinthians last week to be reconciled to God, he says, don't take the grace of God in vain. Let it have its work on you. He also told them to not closely associate with or or not to too closely associate with unbelievers. We saw that the Corinthians were seeming to enjoy their surroundings and the pagan aspects of their culture. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians when we studied that, they were taking advantage of much of the culture and, and whatnot. That, and it was things that ran contrary to a relationship with Christ. And so Paul warns them about that. It's not that we're not supposed to associate with the unsaved world, but that we're not supposed to do it too deeply or get too ingrained. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We're supposed to be walking in the world, but not look like we're from the world. And so Paul challenges them on that because that was leading them away from Christ. So part of their being reconciled to Christ was was um, not associating themselves too closely to the world around them. And then lastly... With a very simple one-verse appeal, he says that they were to cleanse themselves from anything that would defile them. And that was really at the heart and soul of, of their relationship with Christ. Why they had to allow themselves to be, I'll say, re-reconciled to Christ was because they had done some things and involved themselves in some things that had defiled themselves. 
And so they needed to put those things aside, which is ultimately the call of the gospel, is it not? Paul tells us on, in more than one location to put off the old things, to put on the new. Stop behaving the old way, behave the new way, if you will. So that was his appeal last week for them to reconcile themselves to the Lord or to be reconciled is more, more accurate. Today we're going to look at his appeals to them to be reconciled to himself and his traveling companions. And I think this is important because if you think about it, Paul likely had led many of the Corinthians to Christ. He was their spiritual father in the sense that he taught them, he instructed them, um, he spent a significant amount of time around them. In fact, um, Ephesus was fairly close, and he had spent three years at Ephesus, and there was probably travel back and forth. And um, so Paul was their spiritual father, which in some respects means that if they are at odds with Paul, it's going to impact their relationship with Christ to some degree. I don't know that we oftentimes really recognize that. I remember a time when I was in high school or in college after I'd gotten saved, I was heavily involved with the Campus Crusade for Christ. And I had, I don't know what it was, my senior year, I think I was having an attitude problem and I don't know what it was, but I wasn't necessarily behaving appropriately. Nothing, nothing, no gross sin that I can think of, but just my attitude kind of stunk. And I remember one of the leaders of Campus Crusade for Christ, Steve probably remembers him, remember Dan, Dan the man we used to call him, um, pulled me aside to talk to me. And he wanted, he really was trying to figure out what's going on. Why is it that you have this sour attitude? I can see it in your relationship with Christ. And he kind of confronted me. And I just remember I didn't like being confronted by him. And it sort of put us at odds a little bit. But um, what was interesting about that is I finally came to realize that, you know, the dude's just trying to help me out. And it wasn't until I finally, you know, worked on that relationship with Dan and just realized that, that actually my relationship with Christ started to get a little better too. And sometimes that's the way it is when we are at odds with, I'll call it our spiritual parents or spiritual fathers, or we're at odds with other believers in Christ, that impacts our relationship with God. And so I think it's neat that Paul takes these two things, being reconciled to God and being reconciled to him and his companions, and sort of puts them together. Because they are tied together. It's hard to be reconciled to God when we are at odds with not just those um, who have impacted us spiritually, but also those that we are um, sort of brothers and sisters in Christ with. And so he's going to talk about that today. Really, he only does two things. He pleads with them to open their hearts to him. And then he actually encouraged them, encourages them by sharing the comfort and joy that he had received in his relationship with them. And so again, he's going to plead with them to open their hearts up to him. And then he's going to try to encourage them by saying, Man, I've experienced a lot of comfort and joy because of my relationship with you. And that's a way of trying to help them to open their hearts back up to him. My mom had always shared with us that oftentimes the kind words are the words that open people up. You know, It's funny, you go and you rebuke somebody and generally they're going to get defensive. Well, Paul is working on these Corinthians because there's, there's tension in that relationship. And so he's wise enough to realize that, you know, honey's going to work a little bit better than vinegar. And there's, gonna, there's some vinegar in the letter, there was some vinegar in a previous letter that he sent, if you remember, the severe letter. But Paul realizes when it's time to start using the honey, so to speak. And so he's going to encourage them with some words today that are designed, I believe, to help soften their hearts towards him. So let's go ahead and look at that. The first appeal, the appeal that he actually makes here to them is found in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 7. He says, Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Let's go ahead and look at this here. Paul Peel actually began up in verse 13. 
Remember how last week I kind of said that you got these two sections, and there's the they're, they're bigger sections, but within that there's sort of a little chunk in the one section that sort of belongs over here, and there's a chunk here that kind of belongs over here. So jump back up, if you will, to verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6. He says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak to you as children, open wide to us also. That's really where his appeal today begins. He then sort of jumps over verses 14 through 18, and he then finishes up in chapter 7, verse 2 with his appeal. But let's kind of break down what he told us in verses 11 through 13. He starts out by saying that he's been open and honest with the Corinthians. That was probably one of the things that he'd been accused with, or accused by the, the false teachers. They probably accused Paul of not being open or honest. Remember, there were certain things they likely accused Paul of saying he didn't want their finances, but then did this collection that was supposedly for the saints, and they were accusing Paul of actually using that himself. In other words, he's not being forthright with you. He says that he's working on his own. He's providing for his needs and the needs of his men. But he's collecting this for the saints, he says. Come on. He's really using that for himself. So he was accusing Paul. They were accusing Paul of not being open and honest. But he says here, our mouth has spoken freely to you. That's a way of basically saying we've been open. We've been honest to you. We haven't deceived you. In spite of all that they had done, Paul also says that he had not withheld his affection from them. Look at what he says. The New American Standard reads this way. O Corinthians, our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us. There are better translations of that. The NET is one of them. Our affection for you is not restricted. The NIV and the Christian Standard Version also say it this way. We are not withholding our affection from you. So what Paul basically says in verse 11 there is, Our heart's been opened wide. We haven't withheld any affection to you. Imagine how hard that must have been for Paul, knowing the accusations that he had faced. Paul had poured his life, his energy, his finances into ministering to the Corinthians, and what he got back was accusations, coldness, and yet Paul says, but even with that, we didn't withhold our affections from you. How many of you find that difficult when somebody attacks you or says some things that are unkind? Do you find it difficult to share affection with them? No, generally we do the cold shoulder. That's why we call it that, the cold shoulder. You know, When people hurt us, or they're mean to us, or they're not kind to us, there goes the wall. But Paul says, we didn't do that. Our affections towards you have not been restrained. The New American Standard again says, but you are not restrained. But a better reading of that is that we haven't withheld our affections from you. So Paul appeals to them based on that. In verse 13 he says this, Now, in a like exchange, meaning what we did for you, you do for us now. In a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. He's simply asking for them to reciprocate the affection that he had for them. That's the like exchange. Just do what we've done. We haven't withheld our affection for you. Why are you withholding your affection from us? Notice he's also appealing to them as a father would. He says, as to children. I've shared so many times before, and you probably will, I would imagine you will never see a time where I probably don't don't refer to Pastor Krenz as affectionately as I do. He is my spiritual dad. I did not learn. I I learned about Jesus from my dad. I learned about the church from my dad, but it... 
but a lot of who I am today came because of the teaching and instruction and example set for me by Pastor Krenz. And what I love about that is he often refers to me when he writes as a son. He treats me that way too. When I went and visited him this summer, felt like a little boy going back to see his daddy. And that's the way Paul treats the Corinthians here. He says, I treat you like my children. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4.14, he refers to them as my beloved children. does the same thing in the book of Thessalonians where he refers to them as his children. That's the way Paul saw the people that he ministered to. He saw himself in some respects as their spiritual father and treated them as his spiritual children. Why is that important? Now some of us, you know, I grew up in a home where I had a very loving mom and a dad. Not everybody grew up that way, but that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, a father is supposed to affectionately love his children. So Paul uses that example to say, this is how I've been with you. I've been affectionate. I've been like a father with his own children. I've opened my heart up to you. I haven't withheld my love and my affection. And he calls on them to not do the same, or to do the same for him. In fact, look down now at chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, where we pick up his appeal. Therefore, he says, make room for us in your hearts. Just as we've made room for you in our hearts, make room for us in your hearts. He's going to sort of do two things here. He's going to, in some respect, defend his actions. He's also going to defend his motives as he talks through this. Because remember, this is still part of this um, defense of himself. And so he's kind of still defending himself. But he's doing it as a way of trying to encourage them to share their affection with him. So he's going to make three claims about his, uh, his actions here as it comes to them, and he's hoping that they will then follow suit. The first one, he says, is we didn't wrong anyone. Look at verse 2. We wronged no one. Again, that's probably a, a charge against the false teachers claiming that Paul had somehow wronged them. He says, we corrupted no one. So we not only didn't wrong anyone, we didn't corrupt anyone. The idea of corruption here is the idea of ruining or destroying somebody. Paul links this same word to false teachers in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He also, I'm sorry, Peter does it. Jude does it. Anytime there's false teaching, there's corruption. You mislead people. You shipwreck their faith. And apparently these false teachers that had come in were accusing Paul of doing just that. It may have been because, as Dustin has highlighted, they were probably Judaizers to some degree. Meaning coming in and saying the, the, Paul was, was not teaching the whole truth. That they had to apply the law as well. Paul faced that in the, in, in the Galatian churches where you know, they were saying, it's not enough, you have to obey the law. In places like Colossus, they were being told that they had to do these certain um, spiritual practices to gain a better relationship with Christ. All of this was false teaching and all of it corrupted them. It destroyed people's faith. We see that even today, folks. Um, we have a lot going on in the church today, a lot of false teaching. There's always been that. It's nothing new. Um, what was it, Amy, that came in the mail yesterday? Um, Jesus Calling for Christmas? You know, we've mentioned, we've mentioned this book before. Right now, uh, some very noticeable areas of false teaching within the church as a whole has been the abandonment of the literal historical interpretation of the first 11 chapters of, of uh, the Bible, where people have been saying, you know what, now, 
There really wasn't a real Adam and Eve. The flood never really did happen. It wasn't universal. You know, even even Abraham. We're not really sure if Abraham really even existed. And you know, the whole David kingdom. Eh, we don't know if that's really true or not. You know, it's just it just sort of bleeds, and it's infecting the church, but also the whole spiritual formation area right now too, where you see a lot of um, mystic practices infect the church. The you know, some of the most popular selling books today in Christian bookstores are those that re- are regarding spiritual formation and the practice of spiritual formation. And uh, the Jesus Calling book series is just one example of that where it corrupts people, it leads them astray. They're not taught the truth, you know. The third thing Paul says here is not only that he didn't wrong anyone, he didn't corrupt anyone, but that they didn't take advantage of anyone. To take advantage means to do something out of greed or to exploit people. Now remember, the false teachers probably had accused Paul here of taking the finances that were given supposedly for the saints in Jerusalem and using it for himself. Paul was taking advantage of them. But in actuality, who do you suppose was really the ones taking advantage of them? It's the false teachers. They always do. You know, it's, uh, I've told you this before, oftentimes if I'm, I do a lot of, I do my stretching at night, and if I've just got a little bit of, you know, if I finish watching a program or something, I just got a couple minutes to kill while I finish up my stretching, I sometimes will pop over to some of the religious channels on DirecTV. There's a ton of them. And you'll always, I mean, they're, they're almost universally um, governed and controlled by those within the word faith movement. And you can always find somebody begging for finances. You know, you can always find somebody talking about the seed faith gift or give us a thousand and God will give you two thousand, you know. And I'm looking at these people and thinking, man, look at that set. That is gorgeous, you know. Or, gee, that's a thousand dollar suit. Just that tie clip alone probably costs more than... And it's interesting, the money and the wealth that oftentimes goes into some of these religious organizations. And then you think of the people that are supporting them. And they're not generally people making a whole lot of money. It's often those that have very little. And they attract those folks because the reason you're poor is because you haven't given enough. And so give it to us, and God will bless you. Folks, it's a rip-off. It's an absolute rip-off, and that's the way false teaching is. And so as Paul was facing these challenges with these false teachers, one of the things they were accusing him of was taking advantage of you, Corinthians. And so Paul has to defend himself, saying, we didn't wrong you, we didn't corrupt you. We didn't take advantage of anyone. So he defended his actions there. And again, he's doing this to try to win back their affections. Do you ever find yourself in that position where somebody's accused you of something, they're giving you the cold shoulder, not treating you appropriately? And sometimes you have to say, you know what, let's talk about this. You know, you're treating me this way because you're accusing me of something that I didn't do. And it's appropriate to defend yourself. Paul does. He goes on to defend his motives as well. So not only his actions, but his motives. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul's intent, he says, was not to condemn them. It wasn't to point a finger at them. And it says here, it's because they were in his heart. So much so that he was willing just sent him to see Jesus. A little spider on the floor. It's actually a rather big one. So Paul says he didn't he wasn't trying to condemn them. That wasn't his purpose. 
Verse 4, he says this, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. That really gets to the motives of Paul. Why is he doing what he's doing here? He's trying to reassure them that he's not guilty of the things that the false teachers had accused him of. He's trying to instill back within the Corinthians that he's trustworthy, that he loves them, that his heart's open to them, that he hasn't taken advantage of them. That, as he says here, we're willing to die for you. We're also willing to live for you. Whatever it takes, Paul says. So what do we, what do, we do with this appeal here? Because really you can summarize this whole thing here in saying Paul is simply begging them to open their hearts back up to him. I think it's this. Paul's response to the Corinthians I think is rather remarkable here. How often do we see someone who has been so wounded or so mistreated, so hurt, respond with such love and affection? Somebody who has been hurt as Paul has, who has this intense desire to have that relationship mended or put back together. I think it's, you know, it's it's interesting. We live in a world today, especially with social media and everything else, that I think sometimes we almost prefer to just live in the anger and the resentment when we get hurt. You know, it's almost like somebody hurts us and we almost prefer sometimes to be angry about it, to point a finger, to judge, to condemn. Am I wrong in thinking that? I mean, sometimes that's the way it seems. You know, it's, it's, it's as, if, as if we almost prefer to be miserable sometimes. You know, when we think about the news cycle and we think about social media, sometimes we, have to, we feel like we have to live in that constant drama or tension. And yet what we see here in Paul is that Paul's heart was reconciliation. And it was reconciliation with those who had wounded him and who had hurt him likely pretty severely here. In fact, Paul even suffered, it appears, some consequences, not just with his ministry, but just in his life because of what the Corinthians had accused him of and what they had been doing. How often do we cut somebody off, withhold our affection, when they offend us or have maybe an attitude that's not reflective of Paul here? I think it's almost as bad sometimes to just not care. You know, somebody hurts you, and you're just like, forget it, I don't care anymore. That wasn't Paul's attitude. Paul's attitude was, man, open your hearts back up. Let's put this back together. One thing that irritates me, I'll be real frank, is when I when I look at two believers who just can't seem to get along, and I think, why? Why? I understand that, you know, we have different personalities and different likes and dislikes, but animosity? If anything, you know, it's, it's one thing, you know, you look at a family and it breaks my heart when I see a brother and a sister that can't get along or two sisters that can't get along. And I think, wow, man, you're sisters. Can't you just make it work somehow? Now, maybe it's because I grew up in a family where we're all still fairly close, you know, and uh, my parents really worked hard to ensure that. In fact, there was this thing my mom and dad did when we were growing up where we were fighting a lot of siblings and finally my dad said, that's it, no friends. And they basically would not allow us to see any of our friends. The only friends we could have were our brothers and sisters. That was it. It didn't take long before we were getting along. 
then we got to see our friends again. You know, but it was important for them to see us get along as siblings. And so Paul, in his heart here, looks at these Corinthians and with this broken relationship, begged them to open their hearts back up for him. He's already encouraged us to not only forgive others. In fact, if you remember when we went through this passage earlier, they had this brother that had sinned. And Paul told the Corinthians, it's now time not just to forgive him, but to go beyond that and to encourage him now, to rejoice over his repentance. Which means that as we think about this, and as we look at Paul's example, when somebody hurts us, when somebody accuses us of things, really our heart ought to be, you know what, what can we do to mend this relationship? What can we do to fix this? Now, I'll be real frank. It's not always possible because it takes two people to tango, right? And sometimes others just don't want things to be mended. But Paul wasn't willing to do that. He didn't say, well, you guys figure it out and you come back to me when you're ready. Paul writes them. He encourages them. He says, look, I I don't know what, I didn't do anything I'm aware of here. I don't deserve the cold shoulder from you that I'm getting. And my heart's not closed. It's open whenever you're willing and ready. And it really ought to be, I think, our heart. Paul shows us a great example here of what's expected of us when we're mistreated by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our heart should remain open. We should desire that reconciliation. Like I said, it's tough sometimes. But I think it's easy for us sometimes to maybe just remain a little bit closed off. You know, it's interesting too because when you look at what happens oftentimes in, in relationships with believers, oftentimes what breaks that relationship is not the sin itself, but the refusal to grant forgiveness and to welcome those when they do repent. That's often what breaks the relationship. Same thing with a husband and a wife. You know, you sin against each other. That's not what breaks a relationship. It's when you refuse to deal with the sin. And when one party confesses, I think about people I know who have been involved with extramarital, I'll just call it adultery. And the relationships that survive is when the party that's been offended, let me me stop, the party that offends, repents, but the party that is offended against has to receive and welcome that individual back and grant forgiveness to them. When that happens, the relationship survives. Two-way street. And so Paul is doing just that thing here. So I think there's some good practical application in that for us. But Paul moves on then in verses 5-16, through 16, the bulk of his text today, to encourage them. Sometimes it's not just enough to say, hey, open your heart to me. Paul takes that extra step, tries to encourage them, and he's going to do it by using some very encouraging words. Two things here, comfort and joy are probably the best way for me to to lay this out. Let's talk about how Paul was comforted, then we'll talk about how he rejoiced. Paul was comforted by Titus, it says, and the news he brought regarding the Corinthians' repentance. Look at chapter uh, verse 5 through 7. 
For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now we've... In fact, do you think it was even David Ransover mentioned early on? If he sees the word comfort one more time, I mean, the whole first chapter is just, I don't know how many times Paul uses it, but it's over and over. Well, he's still talking about comfort here. When Paul and his companions were at Macedonia, they were waiting for a word. Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians. It was a pretty severe letter. He didn't know how they were going to respond to it or take it. And so as he travels, now he's concerned. And so he's at Macedonia, he's, he's hoping to see Titus, he's, he's looking for some good news, and his heart is aching to get that good news, and guess what, he doesn't show up. Well, Paul's still about the business, so he moves on to the next city, and fortunately, Titus finally arrives. You can almost imagine um, Paul running up to him and saying, hey, good to see you, now let's talk about the Corinthians. Not how was your trip, everything go okay, but Paul is anxious to hear how the Corinthians had responded to his letter. He says in verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. He talks about the conflicts, but the fears within. He said, I faced external conflict, but also internally, Paul was struggling because he didn't know what was happening with the Corinthians. He was anxious to hear from Titus how they had responded. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding my brother Titus, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So Paul had been waiting to hear from Titus and had to wait until he got to Macedonia. I think it was a debilitating wait in some cases for Paul. But then when Titus finally arrived, Paul got some good news. It says in verse 6, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. What was it that Titus did that comforted Paul? Well, it's what he learned from Titus. Look at verse 7. It says, And not only this by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. And so Titus came back and said, Man, what a great trip that was, Paul. And talked about the comfort he had received from the embrace he received from the Corinthians. Titus reported the longing that they had. Paul does not give us the object of that word, but it's possible that Paul is referring to a longing for himself. The word for the phrase for me that he uses there probably refers to everything that they had longed for Paul. It says that they had mourned, which means that they had felt sorry or grief, grief, uh, possibly because of what had happened with Paul. The impression given here is that the Corinthians were thinking, man, you know, Paul didn't deserve what we did to him. So they felt chastised by the letter. It stung a little bit, but they realized that Paul was right. And so Paul says that they had mourned. Titus also reported that they had this new zeal for Paul, it says a deep concern or devotion to somebody. And so Paul, the reason he was so comforted by the Corinthians was that when Titus came back, he shared the good news that they had repented, they had mourned over what had happened, they were longing for Paul, and they had this zeal, sort of a rekindling, if you will. And so all of those things gave Paul a tremendous amount of comfort. You might envision it as... A giant sigh of relief. 
Imagine how that might have encouraged the Corinthians to hear back from Paul. To say, man, that was great news for me to hear that. And you guys brought a tremendous amount of comfort because of the way you responded. Do you think that might encourage them to continue responding appropriately? You know, it's like when, when Paul tells fathers not to exasperate their children, if you're only telling them what's wrong all the time, it just gets exhausting. But tell them, hey, you did good there. You encourage them when they do the right thing. You can go pretty far. Gives them renewed energy. Now they want to please. If they're always being told only what they're doing wrong, it gets discouraging. Sucks the wind out of the sails. It has to be balanced with telling them what they're doing right. Puts the wind back in the sails. And so Paul is encouraging them to open their hearts by saying, man, we got a lot of comfort from you folks. He also goes on, he says that he rejoiced. And he's going to tell us three things that he rejoiced over here. Look at verse uh, second half of verse uh, 7. He reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what eagerness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has refreshed you all, or has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, it was not or I was not put to shame, but we spoke all things to you in truth, so that our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice in everything. I have confidence in you. So let's look at this. There are three things that I can pull out of here that Paul rejoiced over. The first is that he rejoiced over the sorrow caused by his severe letter because it resulted in their repentance. So in essence, he's looking at them saying, you know, I might have caused you a little bit of discomfort, some sorrow, but you know what? It resulted in your repentance, and it's something that I can therefore rejoice over. The reason, he says, is because it's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Look at verse 9 again. He says, For you were made sorrowful according to God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us, for the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. So what Paul basically says is, the kind of sorrow that you felt was produced by God, and that godly sorrow ultimately produces repentance. Isn't that really the case? Remember David, when David cut off the bottom of Saul's robe, (laughs) and it says that he felt remorse that impacted how David treated and respected Saul, the one who was out there trying to kill him. And that's what godly sorrow actually does. It produces repentance. When there's no sorrow, there's generally no repentance. That's why it's... I hate it when I see these celebrities do something or say something, 
and right away everybody starts screaming at them, you know, and so what do they do? They come right out and they say, I take responsibility for my actions. And really, you can tell there's no genuine remorse half the time. It's just, you know, I've got to cover my bottom, you know, got to save my career, you know. Or you hear somebody that when they do, do sin against you and they apologize or they say they're sorry for it, they go, so, well, I'm sorry if I hurt you. I'm sorry if you took it wrong. Really? You're only sorry if I took it wrong. You're not sorry about the fact you did it. You know, I mean, it's not genuine godly sorrow. So godly sorrow, Paul says, led to their repentance, so he was able to rejoice. Notice, too, that it produced an eagerness to do the right thing on Paul's behalf. Look at verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. Notice he says here that this godly sorrow not only produced repentance, but it produced this earnestness. What vindication it produced. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. So this godly sorrow produced all those things. And in everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. In essence, what Paul is saying here is that this godly sorrow um, produced an earnestness to make things right with Paul. That be, After they got Paul's letter, they were convinced and convicted and thought, we need to do the right thing. We need to make this right. Now it's possible, based on Paul's words, you notice he says here that they had proven themselves to be innocent in the matter. In all likelihood, what Paul is probably saying here is that what the Corinthians had done was had committed a sin of omission, not so much a sin of commission. And what that means is, is this. Sins of omission, or sins of commission, are things you do deliberately. Sins of omission are things you don't do that you should. And in all likelihood, what Paul is saying here is that the, the, the false teachers had come in and so poisoned the Corinthians that they had withdrawn their affection from Paul. They started to believe these false teachers that the Corinthians themselves weren't the ones making the accusations, but it was these false teachers, and they had fallen prey to it. And because of that, they had not treated Paul appropriately. They had mistreated him. And so Paul is basically saying that what happened is, as they got Paul's letter, it convicted them, they finally fixed their thinking and realized, no, this is not right. And so it was probably a sin of omission, meaning they just simply didn't do what was right. They didn't rebuke these false teachers. They let it affect them. They were misled, and they mistreated Paul, therefore, as a result of that. And so Paul's saying, because of this, because they corrected their thinking, it prevented further sin, and now they had proven themselves to be innocent. In other words, I know it really wasn't you. It was these false teachers that had misled you. Now, you're culpable because you allowed them to do that, but it was really the false teachers And you've proven yourself now to be full of zeal for me and a willingness and a desire to do the right thing. Verse 12, he says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. That, I think, is a clue to us as well. Paul said, See, what I really did was I didn't write to you to accuse the offender, or or I really wrote to you to stir up your zeal, just to do the right thing to correct some bad thinking, some bad behavior. And so Paul basically is rejoicing first and foremost that the sorrow that had been created by his letter led ultimately to their repentance and this newfound zeal and affection for Paul. The second thing he rejoiced in is found in verse 13. He rejoiced because of the joy they brought to Titus in refreshing his spirit. Think about that. Paul sends Titus in back home with this letter knowing what Titus is going to face probably. He's thinking... 
If they don't like me right now, they're not going to like me sending a messenger back. What am I sending Titus into? Reminds me of a story in the Gospel of Mark where, I think it's Mark, where um, this this, this, uh, landowner creates a vineyard and sets it all up, then he goes goes away. And when the time comes to harvest the crops, part of what he does is he lets the, the vine dressers and all that take part of their share, but then he gets his part, you know? It's kind of like, you know, paying wages. You know, I start a business, I don't get 100% of the profits or 100% of the proceeds. i got to pay everyone, right? So that's kind of the way it works out. So what he does is he goes away and lets these, these vineyard guys run the vineyard, and then he sends his servant back just to collect what's, what's his. And they kill him. He sends another one, they kill him. He sends another one, they kill him, you know? Finally he goes, well, I'll send my son, because they won't kill my son, what do they do? They kill the son. You know, and it's really a ref- it's uh, Jesus is using it to say, God's the, the owner here. I'm the son that he's sent, and you're going to end up killing me. I'm supposed to be here to collect what's the fathers, the souls, you know? Well, it kind of reminds me of that, that Paul is sending Titus back into an area where he's not really sure how Titus is going to be received, probably quite concerned. And so when Titus comes back and says, dude, this was okay. They were glad to see me. They refreshed my heart. They encouraged me. So Paul says, for this reason, verse 13, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I can imagine how Titus must have felt. Bringing that letter thinking, wow. You know, I re- I've read this letter. Paul, ooh, Paul, you might want to tone it down a little bit. But, but it's true. I wonder how they're going to respond to this. Then considering only probably about 10% of the population at that time read, my guess is that Titus probably was the one that had to read the letter to the Corinthians. How would you like to be the messenger of bad news? And so he reads the letter, I'm presuming here. Probably sees some people maybe get up and leave. Maybe see some people bow their heads and start to weep a little bit, thinking, what did we do? But it's a mix, probably. Maybe some of those that got up and left a day or two or three later come back in and say, you know, we've had time to think about it, Titus, and you're right. You're right. So Paul in verse 14 says, For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. In other words, Paul said, hey, these are, these are good people, Titus. We just have to trust them. Maybe Titus didn't want to go. Maybe Titus was like, Paul, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he said, I'm willing to do it, Paul, but wow, what am I getting into? So Paul may have reassured him and said, they're good people. I think God's going to do some good things here, Titus. And so Titus goes and it's not, Paul's not put to shame. The Corinthians live up to Paul's promises. Verse 15, His affections abound all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. They recognize the authority that he came with as Paul's messenger. And so, basically, Paul is rejoicing here, not just that they had repented, but how they had received and treated his servant Titus. That meant a lot to Paul. Because it said an awful lot about how they respected Paul as well. And it says Titus was encouraged by that. I can imagine as they came back, you know, Paul, like I said, probably ran out to to Titus just waiting to see and to hear and maybe have Titus kind of walk up to him and kind of shake his head and go, man, it was awesome, Paul. It was pretty cool. They accepted me with fear and trembling. Let me tell you about the repentance. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you about some of the conversations I had. And he could see Titus glowing, obviously, because 
the joy that Titus felt over what had happened. Think about how that must have been an encouragement to the Corinthians to now hear back. Because remember, Paul is trying to encourage them. Open your hearts up to me. Let me tell you about how Titus was encouraged by you. That's just going to warm the Corinthians up to him, isn't it? Third thing Paul says he rejoices over is just one verse. Verse 16, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Paul's confidence in them had been in some respects restored. Now, not everything is great. There are some issues still at Corinth. But overwhelmingly, Paul is encouraged by what he heard from Titus. And I believe that at this point, Paul probably is convinced that the relationship is now, in some respects, being mended. That they have indeed opened their hearts, but he's now even calling on them more in 2 Corinthians, open your hearts wide to us. So what do we do with this last bit here? When somebody sins against us, or they fail to do the right thing by us, when they respond like the Corinthians did here, what's our response? Like I said, sometimes I think we like to harbor that bitterness or that anger, that resentment, especially if it continues to happen and people do it over and over. Do we find ourselves comforted by their repentance or do we continue to stew over what happened and dwell on it? Paul could have basically said, that's it, I'm wasting my time, I'll go somewhere else. He didn't have to write another letter. He didn't have to make his emergency visit. He didn't have to write this letter, but he chose to against people that had sinned against him. But I love the fact here that Paul says that he rejoiced over their repentance. You know what this reminds me of? Got a couple of examples here. Remember Peter? What, did, what happened with Peter? Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times, Peter, not just once, but three times. At a moment where I need you the most, I'm about ready to go to the cross, you're going to deny me. And it's not just you, but everybody. They're all going to run. And Peter does. It says Peter weeps after that. And what does Jesus do with Peter after he rose from the dead? Takes him out on the beach. Has a chat with him. One thing I've been, I've been reading through the book of Mark because we're going to be going through that, but tradition holds that Mark got most of his material from Peter. The reason Mark had a lot of the stuff that he had for his book was likely from Peter's preaching. There's a focus on Peter to some degree in the Gospel of Mark. The Lord returned his affection to Peter after Peter's repentance and never held it against Peter. Yeah, that was a pretty grave sin, was it not? To deny association with Christ and yet the Lord didn't treat him with anything other than love and affection afterwards. What about Saul becoming Paul? Here's this man that should have known better, knew the scriptures, killed Christians, but he became probably the greatest apostle that we have because of the Lord's affection for him. He didn't look at Paul and say, well, yeah, you finally got it, but I'm not going to use you, Paul. No. I mean, Jesus embraced the man, Saul, even after the most heinous of crimes, but after Paul or Saul had repented and ultimately became Saul. What about John Mark? Do you remember John Mark? Paul took John Mark to travel with him, and John Mark abandoned him through the journey. 
there was a fairly bitter divorce, if you will, um, because John Mark, you know, put Paul in a difficult spot. Remember, when they traveled, it was hard. Paul didn't just go by himself. He relied on men with him, Titus and Silas and others, and John Mark had abandoned him, left Paul in a very difficult spot. But later on, Paul, when he's dying, when he's basically in prison, says, bring John Mark, he's good for me. Paul's attitude towards John Mark, when John Mark had repented, was not just, all right, at least you're a brother in Christ. No, Paul shares affection and looked at John Mark as valuable to him. All of these are just great examples of what we see in this text today and I think would go well for us as believers to develop the same thing because within the church, within the relationships, we don't always get treated the way we want. We don't always treat others the way that we should, right? In our marriage relationships, in parent-kid relationships, sibling relationships, Stuff happens. We hurt each other. We mistreat each other. But there's this call in the scriptures that that when the sin is dealt with, when there's repentance, we have to go beyond just saying, all right, we have to open our hearts and open them wide. And that's what we see in this example with Paul today. They had sinned against him, but Paul says, open your heart back up because I haven't closed off my heart to you.